Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. I worked in Georgia and Armenia. I used to fly into, for example, into Tbilisi, Georgia and do my work in Georgia and then ride my bike partway to Armenia or, or, or drive to Armenia. And then I would leave my bike and my gear in Armenia. So next time I'd go to Armenia first. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 20 of Bike Tour Adventures, I have the chance to get to know Chris Bennett, a 60-year-old Canadian who settled in New Zealand to escape the Canadian winters. As an engineer working for the World Bank, he has lived and worked in over 34 countries. At one point, Chris had 15 bicycles scattered around the world for his training and racing. His wife thought it was better to have a bicycle in every port rather than a girl. After completing an Ironman race on every continent except Antarctica, he shifted to self-supported ultra-endurance bicycle racing. He was attracted to the purity of the races, where it is just you and your bike trying to get from A to B as quickly as possible without outside support. Among his races are the Tour Divide from Canada to Mexico, the Transcontinental across Europe to Istanbul, and most recently the North Cape Tarifa from Norway to Spain. Chris trains and fits these races into his demanding job. It is with pleasure that I have the chance to speak to Chris about what it is like to be a Masters ultra-endurance racer and how he juggles his sport with work commitments. Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, hey, Chris, thanks for the opportunity. People are going to be a bit confused, Chris and Chris. <laughs> Chris Sr., Chris Jr.? <laughs> Any way you want to do it, my, my friend. I think they'll figure it out. So why don't you tell us a bit about your sport history? Um, is this something you've always done, or is it something you picked up as you got older? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Should I start that? Because like with, with cycling, my parents have movies of me at the age of about one and a half trying to on my brother's bicycle. So I've always been into, into cycling. and. I think like most people, our um, career aspirations get in the way of our passions. Yep. And so, well, I always rode my bike a lot from the time I was in my mid-20s till I was about um, mid to late 30s. It was totally career focused with riding just to keep my fitness up. But then I said, no, nah, I, I need to press the reset button. So I turned 40. I flew to San Francisco with my mountain bike and just rode across America to, wow. uh, to Canada, of course just to get away from it all and camp and just have a, have a chill time. And that reignited my passion for long for cycle touring and long distance cycling as well. 
And then, you know, I also did other things. You mentioned my triathlons and I ran marathons. And I think like a lot of people, um, as we get older, we either revert to finding different challenges or we basically become couch potatoes. And I chose the former. So, um, yeah, I've had a lot of adventures in the last 20 plus years. I think it only started in the late 80s, right? Was when triathlon kind of became a sport. Is that around the time you started? Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting. So, so for me, everything's transition. So um, I, I was doing a lot of running. And then I thought, well, if I can run, I can, and I, I definitely can bike. Let's just do a triathlon. So I started probably in the late 90s doing triathlons. Okay. And then we, then we moved to Washington, D.C. in the early 2000s to the World Bank headquarters. And, and D.C. is a fantastic city for, for sports. There's like running races every weekend, triathlons nearby, et cetera. And so um, I was able then to, I then got into running and I decided, okay, I'm going to do the Boston Marathon. And so I decided I'd do marathons for a few years and then said, well, if I can do a marathon, I can do an Ironman. And <laughs> so I, 2007, I did my first Ironman. And then I thought, well, if I've done one, I may as well have a new goal. So I said, Goal on every continent. So I did Asia and Europe and Kentucky and South Africa, Brazil and um, Australia. And so then I did a new, a new challenge. And so I thought, okay, let's just do ultra endurance cycling. And so it's, it, to me, it was all progression doing like, you know, 10K runs to um, Olympic triathlons to Ironman triathlons to ultra endurance cycling. Okay, cool. You did your, uh, your Asian one. You did it. Did you do it in Korea? Is that what I read? Yeah, yes. Uh, I was working in China, so I just took the weekend off. I remember reading reading your blog about it. Apparently, the swim in Korea is just one of the most intense missions of not getting drowned or killed by people in the water or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in triathlon, swimming is a full contact body sport. And so they're, they're all bad just in different ways because you get pulled under and elbowed. I had one friend who actually fractured a rib in Ironman Brazil, but she still finished the race with a, with a fractured rib. Wow. So, but, um, but having said all of that, um, to me, I swim to get on the bike. It's what it's the price I pay to ride my bike and run. Right. I, I don't enjoy it. I, I'm, I'm a cyclist at heart and a runner second and a swimmer about 10th. So when you, uh, when you cycled across the U.S., did you go to Toronto and is that where your goal was? I had no goal per se. I really only had a couple of fixed points. I had a friend down in Yosemite Park in California. Okay. Uh, and so that was the first point from San Francisco. And I then went to visit my parents in Toronto, and I had a friend in Boston. And so I had those three anchor points. But I never got down to Boston because when I was cycling through um, Vermont, at the Vermont New Hampshire border, I got doored, and the guy knocked me off my bike and broke my collarbone. Okay. So um, I'd done 6,020 kilometers. So, of course, I finished the ride. I didn't tell my wife, by the way, that I had a broken collarbone because we said that's it. So I finished the ride, and then it was decided that I would not go down to Boston to visit my friend. So I cycled out to Portland and flew out. Yeah, so that was – it wasn't the, the, the most fun to, to do the last 400-plus K on a broken collarbone. You know, when, when you have a goal, I like to meet that goal. So. And was your setup uh, like a bikepacking setup, or did you have panniers and all the racks and stuff? Yeah, so it's interesting you should ask that because bikepacking is relatively new. It's quite interesting because when I did the first Tour Divide, or my first attempt at Tour Divide in 2011, there would have been probably Revelate Designs and Cascade Designs in the U.S. were probably the only two companies doing bikepacking equipment. Okay. A lot of it was custom-made. And so everything before then was a traditional pannier setup. Mm-hmm. And But now what you can see is bikepacking has exploded since in the last 10 years. Really? Now everyone from Blackburn to... 
Um, there's many companies out there doing bike packing gear. Yeah, I think I, I had read once that, you know, bike packing originally was a road bike sport because that was how people just strapped things onto road bikes and did like ultra endurance events. And that was the original bike packing. But now it's really grown into this off road, off the beaten path type event. Yeah, but it's, but if I, if I may, it's also, it's not just for off road. I mean, bike packing, it, 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 to me, bike packing has a number of advantages over the, the traditional setups. When I'd go touring with panniers, like my wife and I went to Germany and to Denmark and also I did my across Canada, you can take a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you when you go bikepacking, you really try and go minimalist. And I think we'll we'll probably touch this a bit later on. And so so to me, that's part of the bikepacking attraction is um, how how little can I take and still have a functional setup to get me through my trip. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about, well, today we're going to focus mostly on ultra endurance racing. So I want to talk first about training for and getting ready for these kinds of races. How do you prepare for this? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so just for calibration, you know, working for the World Bank, as you mentioned, I, I, I travel a lot. Um, I generally spend about six months, up to six months of traveling per year for work, um, often in periods of four to six weeks at a time. And so for me, um, one of the key things which I found is that as long as you are committed to something, you develop a training program and then you do your best to stick to that training program, recognizing that you won't hit it. And so for me, it's really a case of just ride your bike as much as possible and recognize that you won't always have the optimal um, build um, peak program for your training. And so it's like when I'm, for example, in, when I was working overseas, um, in the country of Tonga, I used to leave my bicycle at um, Tonga Airport Limited and a World Bank mission. We call these just missions, and they deliver my bicycle to the hotel. And so I'd arrive there, my bike's at the hotel, and that's it. Uh-huh. Uh, in China, the Shangri-La Hotel in Wuhan would keep my bicycle and a trainer for me in their left luggage. So I'd bowl up, wave to the guys at the left luggage, and they'd grab my bike and bring it up to my hotel room. Where I worked in Georgia and Armenia, I used to fly into, for example, into Tbilisi, Georgia, and do my work in Georgia, and then ride my bike partway to Armenia or 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 to drive to Armenia, and then I would leave my bike and my gear in Armenia. So next time, I'd go to Armenia first, have my bike, <laughs> ride back towards Georgia. And so, you know, to me, there's if it's really important to you, there's ways of juggling around the logistics of it. Yeah. So, so that's one of the key aspects to it. And the other thing is that it also depends what your goal is with ultra endurance riding. I mean, for me, I try to do the best that I can, and so. What that means is that I'm going to be aiming for 250 to 300k a day in in the on a road race, mm-hmm. and you can't train for that because what it means is you're doing you know 1500 to 2000 kilometers in the first week of the race, and so really um, you just ride your bike as much as you can. You accept the first three to four days of the race are going to be really um, uncomfortable, but then your body transforms and says, oh, okay, this is the new reality. And if you've got a really good base, which most of us do, mm-hmm. uh, it, it adapts pretty quickly. Oh, excellent. Because I'm actually planning to do uh, two events next summer. They're in the works right now. Nothing's fully official, but I'm, tra- I'm thinking the Trans-Pyrenees at the start of the summer and then about a month later, or just about a month later, I would do the... Um, the North Cape 4000. So that's my my thoughts for the summer. Two brilliant races, and I was, I was looking at those myself, but they didn't quite fit in my schedule, so I might have met you on the, on the road. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting. Huh? 
So yeah, we're just planning our summer now and my wife will fly out for the in-between part. So we'll travel together and do some stuff and then I'll pick up my bike again from wherever I leave it and then get to the next race venue and carry on. So preparing for these races, do you, is it just, you know, you, like you said, a lot of the commuting and stuff, do you try to keep it pretty slow or are you pushing it? Or is it like the zone three or, or harder? Or? Yeah, so I, I think that one of the things to, to realize is that if you're riding your bike, I mean, an example, the North Cape Tarifa last year was 7,400K and it took me about 30 days with a, I had a couple of rest days. And so really, you don't spike your heart rate in these races. It's more about having a really good zone three endurance ability. Okay. Because if you spike your heart rate too much in the races, you're, you're going to basically blow yourself up. Well, I think at least I do. I mean, I'm 60 years old, so I have to sort of watch this. And secondly, you know, we have to be really careful about supraventricular tachycardia, endurance racers' heart, because okay. we do put a lot of pressure on our heart. And I had an issue last year with it, but I, but I, I did, went, through, went through a rest period, so it's fine now. So in my younger days, I used to do an awful lot of interval training, uh, Sufferfest videos, oh, yeah. sprints and things. But now it's basically probably 90% zone two and three training or, or more. And at the same time, I also do um, weight training three times a week. Again, I do a what's called a Les Mills approach, which is low to moderate rate weights with high repetitions. Okay. And I also and I also try and run about three, three or four, no, probably about three times a week as well, just some short distances. Because having gone through triathlon, I know that you need to have your your whole body fitness. It's yeah. not just about like. Okay, so this um this heart condition and that's caused by like this high intensity continuous pushing the body, or how does that work? Well, th- there's actually a book on it called The Haywire Heart. Okay. And um, you, you're probably too young, but there used to be this guy called Leonard Zinn, who's one of the real gurus of, of cycling, and he wrote. He, he actually had got hit by by uh, tachycardia problems and in essence you know we, we we put our hearts under huge demands and the key thing is that how do you manage that and the older you get you have to recognize you can't keep on doing lots of zone five and interval training because your heart just isn't up to it okay my cardiologist gives me the analogy saying you don't take a 19 um, early 60s mustang and thrash it around you as you would a brand new mustang Right. And that's that. That's what he says. And I'm I'm actually from 1959 before they had Mustangs, so um, <laughs> he, he used that. But again, so, so that's one of the reasons why, for example, um, I've gone off the mountain biking races um, okay. largely because with mountain biking you tend to have a lot more short, high intensity periods, whereas when you're doing these long distance road races, you you you, you basically park. I park my heart around 120 beats a minute, and it just stays there for as long as possible. Ah, okay. So yeah, you're just taking it easy, but just going for what's your average daily hours? Is it 15, 16 when you're racing? Or? Yeah, it, it really, this is one of the things um, about the racing, which I know I want to talk about training first, bounce around a bit. But when you do an ultra endurance race, you listen to your body. And what that means is that you have a goal distance every day. But if your body is telling you, no, this isn't a day to do it, then you stop. But if you hit your goal distance and you're feeling great, you keep on going. Um, an example was last year when I was in, in France, it was 42 degrees and um, I was in Montpellier and I'd only done about 150K so far in the day. It was lunchtime and it was just too hot. And I knew that I, I would I'd cook myself. And so I went to a hotel for six hours and eight hours and slept and then rode all the next night. Oh. And then there was a time I was doing the Indian Pacific across Australia two years ago and there comes a point in all these races where your body's really firing well and i've never done 500 kilometers in one day so i thought right today's my 500k day 
and everything went really well, but then it got hotter and hotter. And I got to um, Port Augusta, which is north of Adelaide, and it was about 43 degrees. And I'd done 470 kilometers. So I had 30K to go to meet my my lifetime goal of 500K. I cycled 2K and I realized if I keep on going, I'm going to hurt myself. So I stopped. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, I'll now probably never reach my goal of 500K, but hey, I live to race another day. And right. so with all these things, your daily time in the saddle is really governed in a large, should be governed in a large part by how you're feeling. And you see that in, in triathlons as well, or any racing, because you may have a, a marathon goal of a, of a three hour, 15 marathon, but if your body isn't on that day allowing you to do that, you still try and keep to that goal, you'll hurt yourself. You know, and I'm 60 years old, so I've got to be really sensitive about the fact that I want to keep on doing this for a few more years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point. All good advice. Sorry, that was me that took us off of training and interacing. So uh, <laughs> my bad. Tell me, what is the exert player? Because I saw you wrote a little bit of an article about it. And I was a uh, I was wondering how that differs from Swift and all these other products out there now. Okay, well, there's a bit of a bit of a product support here. Yeah, there's a lot of ways of monitoring your fitness and your progress. Mm-hmm. Um, we have things like Training Peaks, um, but Exert is a Canadian company from Toronto. Oh, okay. And X E R T, and they've actually developed a really good way of dynamically looking at what is your fitness at that time. And that time can be during a training ride and telling you, right, this is what you should be doing today. And so what excerpt, because, you know, a lot of us, when we do a training plan, be it for a triathlon or one of these cycle races, we'll have a couple of days a week, which are, say, for speed training, a long ride on a certain day. You You have different types of rides that you do as you build up. Well, that's a static plan. And I have those. I've done those. What excerpt does is it looks at your fitness on that day and says, right, here's the here's the workout for the day. And that, that can change dynamically over the course of, of a week, over the course of a month. And so what they're doing is a, it's, an, it's an adaptive training approach, which says, what's your current fitness today? And what should we, we be doing to build up towards your goals? So as opposed to a fixed static training plan, it's a dynamic. Plan. It's kind of like it's a, a computerized version of a personal trainer that's watching all your metrics and trying to figure out the best for you, right? Yeah. And, and honestly, since I've started using it the last couple of years, I've really found it far more efficient for my uh, training for these rides. Oh, really cool. I'm going to have to look into that more because I, I did, I have, I have it opened up as a tab on my computer. It's like in my, one of my hundred tabs that are open that I'm going to read more about. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 and as I say, there's, there's, there's three aspects to the, to the system. They actually have what they call excerpt player, which is you can have on your phone as you're riding your bike and it will show in your real time dynamically how what what power you have available in terms of your oh, of your uh, your reserves then they have your the the standard let's monitor your 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 training fitness over time and then they have the adaptive training advisor and i really like the adaptive training advisor uh, a lot of the athletes in ultra endurance bike races um, they tend to be on the other side of 40 um, why do you think this is i think there's a couple of reasons there's a point in your career where you can afford to take off three or four weeks of time <laughs> just to go and ride your bike. And a lot of younger people are, are, are career and family focused. And so to do these things, you require a lot of time of training and a lot of time to do the races. I think that's part of it. I think there's also a very high cost to do endurance racing. It doesn't always have to be, but that's the side of it. But I think the other thing is, is your mental toughness. Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, was the first man to summit Mount Everest. He yeah. did it when he was in his, in his, I say, about 32 or 33. And he was once told to have said that he couldn't have done it when he was younger because he didn't know his abilities. 
or his capacity to do things. And I think the older that you get, the more you realize that it's not what you can't do, it's what you can do. And you do have far less limitations on yourself. And maybe part of that too is the ability to self-regulate. Like you said, when you're feeling it that that day, you shouldn't push it that extra 30K and knowing that your experience tells you don't do it, you're safer that way, you know, just with the experience. Yeah. I would like to ask, how do you get your wife to give you permission to do all these races? Because you've done quite a few of them. Well, because she she knows that this is really good for my mental and physical health. Um, and and the key thing is that, honestly, is that my, my job is a 10 out of 10 for stress. And I'm actually quite famous in, in the World Bank because I have this out-of-office message which basically says, I'm racing my bike for the next three weeks. I'm not checking emails. I'm not going to read any emails that came while I'm off bike racing. So send it again when I'm back or this person will help you. Because to me, this is this is my total disconnection. You know, you don't worry about work. You don't worry about internet. You don't worry about job. It's just you, your bike, enjoying these amazing places that you get to experience. And, and that's that to me is one of the huge attractions is just it's a way of disconnecting. Okay. But I think also for younger people, and particularly say on the Tour Divide, where for probably a quarter of it, there's no cell phone coverage. I think that just the act of being totally disconnected from everything um, younger people have more trouble with than people my age. When you're young, you you probably miss that. When you're my age, you rather enjoy it. I don't mind the disconnect. Yeah, uh, I think because uh, I'm in the I'm in that Gen X still where it's you know pre and post technology, so I'm I'm okay with the the digital disconnect. <laughs> so getting the time off work is that part of uh, working for the World Bank? That because you're uh, traveling so much that you do get more holidays and you can book your time off that way? Or? Well, actually, um, a big part of it is the fact that we get four weeks leave a year, so I save it. But then when you travel, you also miss all the statutory holidays quite often, mm. and so you get those those days off in lieu. And so it's just a case of juggling your available leave around how long is a race you can do given how much leave that you have. So that sometimes dictates the race. Like for example. Um, in 2016, I did a 10-day race, whereas last year I did a, a one-month race. Right. Do you get jet lag before the race? And does it affect you as a racer or because you ride such long days, it doesn't really matter if you're tired or not from time change? No, it, it doesn't matter because returning, returning to what I said earlier on, you listen to your body. And so you ride and when you get really tired, um, you just hop off the bike and sleep. And that's why... Um, like I remember I was doing one race with a, a friend from Australia who I won't say his name and it was the, the 2015 transcontinental and we left at midnight from west of Brussels I was riding uh, I was with this with this guy from Australia and it was about five and four in the morning he says oh I'm really tired of this jet lag I think I'll find a cemetery and just go and have a sleep for a few hours <laughs> and yeah, and that's the whole thing is you just listen to your body. Now, admittedly, I haven't slept in cemeteries. I've slept in a lot of other places, but um, not cemeteries. But it's just a case of jet lag is just one more thing to listen to your body and respond to it accordingly. I guess cemeteries are always quiet. People are always respectful and quiet in them. So, And they have water for, for the flowers. Oh, that's right. Yes. Try, <laughs> these, these are secrets of endurance racers. So, so th these are some of the considerations that you have. Where can I find water? Yeah, cemeteries. You want to find a place to sleep? Uh, sports grounds. They're often deserted at night until early morning, and there's places like benches you can sleep on. You know, so we have all these little 
solutions, but I've not seen And public toilets too at the sports grounds a lot of times. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Montana Hilton as we call them. <laughs> My wife and I were doing a, uh, an, a little orientation, uh, orienteering race in the Gatineau Park uh, recently and one of the points was on the other side of the cemetery so I jumped over the fence and ran across the cemetery and one of the other women racing, she saw me and she's like, oh, I don't know if I would walk through the cemetery. I said, ah, nobody's <laughs> bothered. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't sleeping there though. So on to the ultra endurance racing, I guess it's a kind of a silly question. How is it different than a traditional bike race? I mean, traditional bike races are short and this is long. I guess that's the, the, the who and the ha of it, right? Actually, Chris, I, I, it's not quite that simple in the sense that you have ultra endurance races which are supported and unsupported. Oh, okay. And, Tell us about that. And, and, and I do the unsupported races. And the, to me, that is one of the big differences with ultra endurance racing because it's just you and your bicycle. And it's up to you to deal with the problems that you have and get yourself to the finish line. If you think of, say, the race across America, that's an ultra endurance race, but the riders have a car in front of them have a car behind them. They often have a camper van with a bike mechanic, a masseuse. And that's a quite different ultra endurance race to the time, for example, um, in the Tour Divide, there was this woman, um, her name will come to you in a few minutes, and she was going to the desert and her rear hub broke. And so her cassette was spinning around with, 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 without doing anything. Oh, no. And it was probably um, 150 miles to Steamboat Springs to, to get it fixed. So what do you do? She sat down and looked at it and thought, I know. So she got cable ties and cable tied the cassette to her spokes and continued on. Oh, good call. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but if she was doing RAM, someone would have topped out and given her the bicycle to ride. To me, these are some of the fundamental differences. It's you and trying to deal with whatever's thrown at you, and you ride your bike as much as you want, where you want, then you find somewhere to sleep, find somewhere to eat. If your bike breaks, you fix it yourself or find a bike shop to, to get it repaired. And so I, I actually say, and this is people, people in the ground, I think it's a really pure form of bike racing mm-hmm. because really it's just you and yourself. But having said that, the word race also probably isn't quite right as well. Yeah, we all want to finish ahead of someone else. Don't get me wrong. But we also want the other riders to finish as well because we know it's all part of a journey. And so it's also a, a really good spirit because when I ran marathons or triathlons, it was, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush that person next to me. Because with ultra endurance racing, you know, it's all about finishing yourself, but you really hope the other riders finish as well. In triathlon, I mean, save somebody having a heart attack on the path while I'm running, I probably wouldn't stop for them. You know, if I saw somebody go down and clutching their chest, that would be a point where I stop racing and try to get help or try to do something. But I mean, if somebody goes down with cramps, you're like, ha, okay, whatever, I'm going, you know? Yeah. Now, when you had 15 bikes around the world, were they all pretty <laughs> expensive bikes or are they like a variable cost? Like, how, how could you afford that? Uh, well, a couple of things. Um, Lots of Christmas presents? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so to begin with, like in, in places like, like Kiribati, I bought a local bike from a shop. It's a Chinese really, really junky bike. But Kiribati, the entire island is only like uh, – 45 kilometers long and so you don't need a good bike i also had a folding bike at one point and i had um uh, different road bikes and so uh, uh, they range in price from low cost to really really expensive okay. bikes. yeah so it's the full range and and sometimes like um i would upgrade a bike and then the old bike would become my um leave a bike like for example um i used cervelo p3s for my time trial bike yeah nice. and I had an early P3, which was an aluminium bike, 
And then uh, about uh, some years later, I bought my, myself a uh, carbon fiber one. And so I retired that P3 bike to be my bike, bicycle lift in Sydney, Australia. And so whenever I'd go to the office in Sydney, I locked in the bike stand, my P3. Ah. And then, and then sometimes like um, I left, I had an old um, Trek carbon fiber bike in the Solomon Islands and I actually um, didn't go back there. So I gave that bike to one of my team members and he was very happy with, with, this, with this nice road bike of mine. So, you know, it, it, it depends upon the situation, but most of them are road bikes. Mm-hmm. And because once again, that's most of the training that I do in these places is on roads, not on mountain bikes. Okay. And what kind of mountain bike were you using when you did the, the race to tour divide? Three years in a row, right? Or no, three out of four years, something like that. Well, no, it's, it's, it, yeah, is I did it three. I did it three times, uh, and and the first time I disqualified myself because I got an asthma attack, had to go to the hospital, okay. and people say, "Why are you disqualify yourself?" Because the rules in the Tour Divide is that you can't go ahead on the course except under your own power. Okay. And the hospital, the hospital was ahead of me. I had to flag down a ride to go to the hospital, so I, I disqualified myself. And then the next year, I was halfway through, and my mother broke her hip in Canada, so I, oh, I, no. I, I quit the race and went just to help her. So third time I finished. Okay. My wife said, you've got to finish this year. So <laughs> for those, I use a, ti- a titanium hardtail mountain bike. Okay. And what, what brand with, is that? Uh, um, it's actually from uh, a Moto Bikane. Uh, there's, a, there's a website called bikesdirect.com, which sells great low-cost titanium bikes. Okay. And, so, and a hardtail titanium is ideal for that. That's, that's my main mountain bike that I use for endurance racing. I also replace the front compression forks with um, suspension forks with uh, carbon forks because with the Tour Divide, there's a lot of hiker bike in places. And I actually find that you don't really need um, shocks for, for the Tour Divide. Oh, okay. So I, I'm happy to have completely rigid. Okay. And then the carbon forks also cuts a ton of weight off the bike, right? Yeah, the pod cuts about two to three kilos off the bike. But then in places like the Tour Divide, where in some places you're carrying three liters of water, because I think weighs less of an issue than on other races. Okay, how many days did it take you to finish the Tour Divide the third time around? Uh, I think 23 days. And um, I, I think I, yeah, I, yeah, it was about 23 days, and I came in 27th on the race that year. So oh, I was quite glad. That's nice. To get yeah. that one done, it was, it, was on my, it was on my bucket list. So now, now that one's out of the way. Sweet. And um, your road bike for ultra endurance racing, uh, what kind of bike do you use and, and how is it different than typical traditional road bikes? Okay. Well, I, I think to begin with, all the, I think all endurance, ultra endurance riders would say they have extremely customized bicycles. And so my ultra endurance road races are PMC GF01, which is a carbon fiber bike. Okay. And um, it's designed actually for things like the cobblestones in Belgium. So it's got a really large down tube in the front and so it's fantastic and then i've modified it to have a dynamo hub which gives me the power because if you want to say cycle 20 30 hours which i have done on that time you want to cycle all night long mm-hmm. you don't want to run out of battery power and so i use the, i use a son dynamo because the song you can get different dynamos but i found that song really reliable i heard they're one of the best yeah basically yeah and well, i would say they are the best but i'm not plugging <laughs> but i'm biased and then I've also modified it to have DI2 electronic shifting. And that's because what you find after um, 1,000 to 2,000 kilometers of mechanical shifting, your hands get really sore. Okay. And so I, I found that the transition to um, DI2 shifting was, was a huge benefit for me. And then um, I also have um, most recently put on um, oval cranks. 
because um, there's a company called Absolute Black, which really push oval cranks. And I found incredible improvement on pedaling efficiency. When yeah. I whacked on the, the uh, oval cranks, I immediately set some records on a number of Strava segments that I ride quite regularly. So for me, it was, it was quite, um, you know, quite noticeable. I used to have a carbon fiber handlebar on the bike. Okay. But when I was going across Australia, my bike got blown over. And I leaned it against a sign to get a photograph, and a truck drove by and blew it over and broke the carbon fiber handlebar. Oh, I remember seeing the picture of that. Yeah, and the problem was it was like 1,200 kilometers to the nearest bike shop. So, you know, this comes back to endurance racing. So I'm sitting there with a broken handlebar. You know, it was broken just above where the, um, the brake hoods are. And so I said, okay, well deal with this. And so I basically just got some Velcro straps and put it under compression and um, cycled 800,000 kilometers with broken carbon handlebars without putting any weight on the left hood. Otherwise, the whole thing snapped off. So um, yeah, so it's, it's a case of, of customizing your bike so it works for you. And we're all different. But I think that most of us who do these races would agree that we find little tweaks and things to make our bike far more comfortable and more usable. Okay. And I, I think Endurance road bikes are a little bit longer than your normal road bikes, right? Just to give a little bit more comfort over the long distance. I, I'm not sure because like with me, I find it's, it's what works for your body in the sense that like, like I have a really short stem on my bike because I prefer being slightly more upright because it takes more pressure off, pressure off my lower back. Now, other people prefer more aggressive position, but then you run the risk of Schirmer's neck. In the sense that you know we have we have arrow bars, and if you're in an aggressive position, it gets your back and your neck. Talk about Shermer's neck now. I was going to bring it up later, but I think it's uh, it's just as well. Okay. So what happens is if you get too aggressive a position, when you think about it, you're spending 10, 15, or like 20, 30 hours in your bike, and so if you're leaning forward, looking up with your neck, it can actually affect the ability to hold your head up. And about three years ago, James Hayden was doing fantastic in the Transcontinental race. And he got Shermer's neck and he couldn't keep his head up. And there's some great photographs of his attempted um, using tape and things to, to give support for his neck. And, um, yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, and in the Indian Pacific race in Australia, my friend Vasiliki got Shermer's neck. And so she had to cycle with a neck brace and holding her head in her hands on, on the handlebars. And so to me, the whole thing about your bike returning to the setup is that you want to find a bike that's comfortable to sit in for many, many, many hours and a position that is a balance between uh, an aggressive aero position and an upright position, but one which your body is comfortable at staying in for hours and hours and hours at the time. Okay. And also your bike seat. That's also obviously another consideration. I was going to say, what I've kind of seat do you use? Yeah. Dozens of bike seats over the years. And I finally found the one which worked for me, and it was a specialized. And so I, I, I had a permanent search in eBay. For any of these seats coming on sale on eBay, I bought every one of them that I could. That I could. And now, uh, so cause this seat works for me. I can spend 30 hours on it and not get any blisters. Okay. So find what works for you. Find the bicycle that's comfortable and just follow that. The, the bike seat thing is one of the hardest because it's they're, they're not cheap. You know, bikes can, seats can cost anywhere from 100 to like three, 400 bucks, whatever. I mean, the price is, goes on, but. I find it really hard to find a seat that you really like and you know it's hard to test with other ones because you have to spend money most of the time unless you have a good yeah. local bike uh, shop that will lend you a seat to try out and yeah correct and, and the key thing is once you find one that works buy extra ones because they're not always available so now you have a stockpile at home yeah 
Yeah, I still got about two left, but they, they, they no longer appear on eBay. I think I bought eBay out of these. <laughs> All right. What kind of electronic shifting are you using? Is it uh, Shimano or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's DI2, Shimano DI2. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm a Shimano person because you can get Shimano parts everywhere. Yeah, is it Durace or, or Altegra? Altegra, okay. because um, what you find is over time, like my the after about two years, the Altegras are are, are the same as the old Durace. So yeah, those... when they get it's, it's all it's all customized. The, the other thing is that I use a Chris King bottom bracket because one of the, uh, because one of the big problems I've found in the past is a lot of these races really trash your your bottom brackets. Okay, and so you want to have a very high quality one. Of those, I, I heard. I, I remember one of your earlier um, interviewees was saying he's doing the with Jonas. Race down yeah. yeah, he was saying he's taking the bottom bracket with him, and I could say, "Yep, I've 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 been there, done that." Well, that guy, his bottom bracket broke in in Laos, and he ran yeah. with the bike, so he didn't get disqualified. It was like, wow, you know, like so. Yeah, so the Chris King ones. I mean, we know Chris King makes excellent, excellent products. They're very, they're quite expensive, but I guess. Um, when it comes to bottom brackets, you don't want to have a failure, right? Yeah, and it's, it's one of the things. And, and again, you know, the other advantage being 60 is that you're, you're more financially secure. In it. But when you think of the time that you spend training for these things, you're doing 10, 15 hours a week for months on end. To say, oh, I'm using a $50 bottom bracket, a standard Shimano rather than a $150 bottom bracket, it's, it's really false economizing because you've made a huge investment of time and, and energy into this. And so... It, it, to me, is something which you have to balance. You know, not we can afford it, but it's it's really important to say what's the riskiest things for me. And bottom brackets, I think, are one of them. And pedals, I've had pedals fail on me, um, which and so I always buy a new set of pedals before every race. And even then, I still have them fail. But you 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 do what you can to reduce the risk that something's going to go wrong. Good to know. Yeah, these are like key things that you wouldn't think of as an ordinary person getting into it to do your first race, like me next summer, right? So many things to think of. I was making a potential budget for it, and and it's you know it really starts to add up when you're thinking of the things you need to buy. Yeah, but then it's, it's I mean it's interesting as um, when I did the Tour Divide race, I had a new bottom bracket fitted in Toronto, and the Tour Divide's four thousand four hundred k, and this was a four hundred dollar bottom bracket, and at the end of the race it was totally trashed. Went back to the bike shop. Less than a month later, I said, hey, I need a new bottom bracket. And they said, well, what do you mean? We just gave you a new one a month ago. I said, yeah, Tour Divide, it just destroyed it. And, and they were incredulous that in one month, one one ride could, could destroy it, but it did. Did they warranty it? No, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, uh, no, they, I think nothing is warranted if it's on the Tour Divide. <laughs> Let's talk about setting up the bike and uh, regards and talking about packing. Um, how do you succeed with in terms of packing and a bike setup, like what are the, what do you pack for these kind of events? Well, I, I think if you can, there's there's probably three groups of people who are doing these races. There's like the total minimalists who take virtually nothing with them. Okay. Then there's people who take everything, including the kitchen sink. And I'm definitely towards the minimalists, but not totally that way. Okay. And so. And, and so just as one example, in the 2014, uh, 2014 Transcontinental Race, we had a checkpoint at the top of Mount Stelvio in Italy. And it was below zero with freezing rain being driven horizontally. And um, there were people there who were taking the silver emergency blankets, cutting yeah. them up and taping them on their arms and legs because they had no rain gear with them. 
Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magna in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. So those are the total minimalists, which I think is crazy. Not even rain <laughs> Not even they didn't have some people didn't have rain gear and and so they I'm I'm a step up from that in the sense that I take uh, a rain pants and a rain jacket and I take a a, a down jacket uh, rolled it up because yeah, that's pretty much what, what I was thinking what, pack. Yeah. what will take me out is really being cold for too long that's that's my weakness because I know that others have different weaknesses but so so my total setup is about six kilograms for doing a race okay and and that includes the clothes that I have, um, it include which which basically consists of a, a, a rain jacket, rain pants, uh, some rain booties, two pairs of socks, a spare pair of shorts, a spare shirt, and that's about it. And then I have like a sleeping bag and a bivy bag and a, um, a sleeping mat. And I use a bivy bag as opposed to a tent because a lot of the time you do what we would politely call stealth camping right where you basically find uh, a dark corner somewhere and you sleep there be it the doorway of a church be it a bus stop be it in a barn somewhere that you see is open at night and then you hopefully leave in the morning before you get caught and so having a bivy is great because i have rolled up my bivy my my air mattress my sleeping bag and bivy so i just unroll the whole thing and put some air in the mattress and sleep Oh, okay. and it's really, really quick to load and unload and and then you take some spare gear but when i was first doing ultra endurance racing i just lay everything out and then basically get rid of one third is the rule i did and now i'm down to what i think is a is a, is a really good balance between having um, enough that i won't be taken out due to mm-hmm. rain or cold or something but not so much that it's ridiculous or not so little that i underplanned Okay. I've, I've heard of people like for ultralight running or ultralight racing like this that take a, the rolling mattresses and cut them shorter and then cut out the empty space in between and cut the, to the thickness of their torso and only down to their butt and like things like that too. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't even take a bivy bag. They might take a plastic sheet or they might take nothing. And, and again, those are the ones who, and I'm not criticizing. There are people like um, the late Mike Hall who could do these sort of things. It was an amazing cyclist because he could go totally minimalist and um, perform the way few of us could perform on our best days. Right. But but I, I've seen others who I've had to, which is against the rules, actually lend them clothes because they were going hypothermic. 
and we're not supposed to help other riders, but to me, that, that's a safety issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'd rather just not play with people's safety. Yeah. Was Mike, how many kilometers in a day did he, would he have ridden on average? Like somebody on that top of the category? 400. 400 easily. every day kind of thing, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. Um, when, when you do all these races, we pretty, we, we pretty early on break up into three or four groups. We have like the amazing athletes of like Mike Hall, um, Jesse, um, you know, Christoph, uh, Christoph Allinger and others who are doing 400 plus K every day, or they might do five, 600, 700 K in one push because they go for like 30, 40 hours and you know, just like super people. And so you pretty soon find out you've got like the super people, you've got people who do about 350 K a day, 250 and, and down. And so, you, so after about three or four days, you're bumping into the same people all the time because they're doing around the same distances that you are. Okay, so you just kind of keep running into each other at what at a restaurant or yes. And, and so, like an example being that in in, in the North Cape Tarifa race, I I, I ended up coming in tenth, and I, I met numbers nine and eight on on the Pico de Aya mountain in Spain. You know, they were coming down, I was going up, and we had been sort of crossing each other for for a long time and so and that was what two days from the end or day and a half from the end and so we were all doing around the same average daily distances and then there was a there's a gap to the next group so uh, and and it also gives you a sense of camaraderie because you do you do people you have you you see at the hotels or you see at the restaurants and it's nice to catch up and you sometimes ride together just to keep each other company for a bit and even sharing hotel rooms i think i read in a few of your blogs end up just sharing costs yeah. by getting a hotel together or whatever. Yeah, very much so. How much water and food do you carry when you're racing? Because I imagine, I mean, I, I guess there's some variance when you're in like North Cape up in the North, you probably carry more. How do you decide how much to carry? That's what I should ask. Again, it's, the, it's really a balance of, of knowing what your body needs. Like for example, going across Australia, I was carrying five liters in some sections because it was up to 400k between say 200 to 400k i think between petrol stations okay. in the outback and the thing is they aren't open 24 hours so you may arrive somewhere and find that they're closed in which wow. case you've got to keep on going or wait until they open so there we all carried i think a lot more food and water than we normally would mm-hmm. uh same with the tour divide because there can be some long sections between canada and mexico with with not many services whereas cycling in europe it's much easier to find um, food and water. And so you generally don't have as much of a problem. Okay. In fact, paradoxically, one of the races I had the biggest problems with food and water was the 1,200-kilometer uh, Glenstein Trophy race in Germany, which follows the old um, border between East and West Germany because they depopulated all the villages. And what's left often doesn't have any shops and difficult finding water. And so I found that was probably my hardest one for supplying of everything. And you won that one, huh? Uh, well, I, I was the first survivor. I, I wouldn't say I won it. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting blog, and it looked like absolute misery on what you had to write on those uh, those concrete slabs. Yeah, Panzer plates. It'll interest you that that, that that next year I'm part of a team probably doing a movie um, of that of that ride because um, it's also very profound. This is the third anniversary of the fall of the wall, and. Mm-hmm. Um, with what's happening in the world, with borders going up. And so a bunch of us are going out there with to hopefully do a documentary on it next year. Oh, cool. That's Yeah, next summer then? Yeah, next summer. Oh, that sounds awesome. Well, what do you use to record your, your daily rides? Like what kind of GPS system? 
Uh, I have a Garmin 1000, but one of the things is that um, you also have backups. And so I have my cell phone as the backup. And so everything you do, you have redundancy mm-hmm. because more than once I've had my GPS lock up on me, like when it's been raining for a long period of time or it's been cold and something just happens. And so you can't rely on one thing. Oh, and so, okay. I, I always, so I always have um, the roots loaded into my cell phone. So if my phone goes down, I use my cell phone as a backup. Makes sense. Moving forward here, let's talk about one race in particular. I, I really, I really wanted to to make my first ultra endurance ride the North Cape Tarifa, but it doesn't quite mesh with my teaching schedule. And I thought maybe doing a seven thousand kilometer ultra distance race for as a first one is not a good idea. But since uh, since it was the last race you did, I think you've probably mastered, like you said, you've kind of got your system of packing and everything down. What did you do to prepare for this race? So for some context, the North Cape Tarifa runs from the northernmost point in Norway to the southernmost point in Spain, and it's a 7,400-kilometer race, and or sorry, adventure, because technically they're not races. If it's races, the organizers have to have insurance and everything. So we'll say it's an adventure. And really, for training, as I said earlier on, I just rode my bike as much as possible. So even though I live in New Zealand where I can ride year round, mm-hmm. I do an awful lot of time on my trainer in preparing for these races. And that's because with my work, I'm very time crunched. Yeah. And so the quality of an excerpt workout on the trainer is better than I can get by going and riding my bike around where I live in Golden Bay. Uh-huh. And so I'd say I probably spend well over half of my training sessions on a trainer getting ready for these races. And as I said earlier on, um, you, you really can't be fully prepared to do 400 plus K a day. But I find that just by a lot of time using the excerpt training program, I was really race fit for this race. How many hours a week do you ride? Uh, it, peaking would be about 20 hours a week. Okay. Generally, I do 15 hours a week. But I mean, for some context, last year I cycled 15,000 kilometers and drove 4,000, which I think is about the right ratio. That's awesome. <laughs> ride your bike four times as much as you drive your car. But, but it's because, like, if I'm going somewhere and I can ride my bike, I'll just ride my bike. But one of the things which is different with me from other endurance racers is that I actually don't do probably any long, long-distance rides before the race. See, a lot of people will go off and do 1,000 or 500-kilometer um, weekends. I, I just don't do that. I don't have the time with my job. And so for me, I, I do as much cycling as I can within the constraints of I have a 50-hour-a-week job. And a wife and other things to do and then first few days of the race my body just gets up to its race business and then, then i'm fine yeah i kind of read that really the 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 pre-race training weekends and stuff are not so much about getting into race form per se as testing out your equipment because and and i think you're well tested in your equipment so it's maybe not as necessary as what a lot of people do yeah it, it's it, but i think it's also being comfortable in the saddle yeah and i because I've now done, um, I, I worked out with my wife yesterday. I think I've done about 50,000 kilometers on this bicycle over, over the last um, six years, seven years. Yeah. And so I'm very comfortable on my bicycle. And so I don't need to do these long distance rides to dial in my bike. It's, it's dialed in. How much does it cost to do such an event like this? It varies hugely. Now, one of my, one of my um, friends, Oliver Whaley, he actually kept tabs and he spent over, I think, $100 a day on average on food doing one of these races. Because you've got to realize you're burning a huge amount of calories. 
Um, when I did that long, that 472-kilometer day in Australia, Garmin Connects, I burned 11,000 calories okay. in, that day, in that day. And so you find that the biggest expense is food and just keeping your body fueled. And then after that, the other expenses will vary depending if you're going to be stealth camping a lot or staying in hotels. And if you're staying in a hotel, is there another rider around you can split the room with? So I, I think it really depends, but but broadly, I would say probably fifty to hundred dollars a day for food is the is the, the single big expense with this racing. Okay, and did what's your ratio for like stealth camping to hoteling? It comes back to the, to your race approach. As I said earlier on, with me, I listen to my body, mm-hmm. and so sometimes I arrive in a town at eight or nine o'clock at night, and I still feel really good, so I'll just keep on riding, and then I'll stealth camp that night. Other times, I'll arrive in a town, and um, I'm a Christian, and I'll sometimes say, okay, if I'm meant to stop, um, I'll pray about this, and I'll say, all right, the hotel will have a room for me. And then I'll take that, okay, stop tonight. So for me, I'd probably say one-third of the time in hotels and two-thirds of the time stealth camping okay. would be a typical ratio. But again, it really depends, because sometimes the weather really, really sucks, you don't want to be stealth camping. <laughs> yeah. And the other expensive thing can can be parts on your bike when things when things break. It's like in in one race I was in France and and basically my my rear hub failed and so I, I had to buy a new rear wheel and so that was that was an expensive proposition. But and other times I've had to do you know chains or cassettes and things. Uh, tires often um, are expense as well. But when you're budgeting for these sort of races, just think about your food budget. Okay. Because that's really where, where you'll be amazed how much you can spend on food. Good to know. Actually, I was going to ask you, before a race, you said you always change your pedals. Do you also put a new chain and new cassettes on? And Yeah, very much so. Um, and so what happens is I have a new chain, a new cassette, new pedals, um, new bottom bracket. And because those are your high points of, of, of failure for yourself. New tires as well, of course. An example being there's this thing called a roll-off hub. And I had one friend who was racing the Tour Divide and he had a, a belt driver's roll-off hub, which had only 5,000 kilometers on it. And these things are supposed to last like 15, 20, 30. Yeah, yeah, and it, broke, it, and it broke partway through the Tour Divide. You know, and, and so he, he was out. And so he, it, it comes back to saying, you know, we have a huge time and emotional commitment to train, get there and do the race, and then say, okay, so, you know, for, for a $40 chain, do I want to risk, uh, risk that or a $60 cassette? So, yeah. so you... So you really have to balance what you can afford, but also with the, the risk that these things will go wrong. And it's amazing what amazing what fails. Like I've had cleats fail on me because you you, know, you think, oh, these are brand new cleats. Well, after three thousand kilometers of, of the Tour Divide, they're they're stuffed, and so you need to buy a new set of cleats, which, which surprised me. <laughs> yeah, and you don't really think of it like three thousand kilometers on a mountain bike is more than probably most people do in two or three years. So cleats are going to wear out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> For with regards to gear, I mean, like uh, if we talked about the bags on your bike, I think you use a, a handlebar roll of some sort or a handlebar bag. What kind of bags do you use? How much would you budget for these things? I just said a little bit because it all reflects how much you're going to carry as right. well. Yeah. Now, for me, what I've found over the years is that there are, are pluses and minuses with all sorts of bags. In Canada, people think I'm a Canadian advocate here, but it's true I am. There's a company called Porcelain Rocket out in uh, Calgary. Okay. And they make what I think is the best seat bag. The reason is they have a collar which fits around your, your seat post and then a metal frame for the seat bag. 
because what really annoyed me with my other seat bags is when they get heavily loaded, they'd sway and hit against my legs. Yeah. And so I finally found the one company, at least at the time, that made a design that was perfect. It didn't have any sway in it. So, I, so that's my seat bag. For the handlebar roll, once again, um, I found a company which made just what I thought was the right harness. And so I used their harness and their front bag for that one. I had a, a cut, I have a Topeak gas tank bag. Buy them off the shelf for like forty dollars. They're perfect. These large gas tank bags. I have a custom frame bag to fit inside the the BMC frame. So I don't have any one set of bags, say from Apodura or Blackbird or Everlate. But what I've done is I found what works for me. Now this is my setup. Others have different and better setups than I do, but. Again, this is my dialed-in approach from, from my racing. Yeah, and if you look up like uh, ultra endurance bikes, Pinterest, man, the setups you see is it's not like anything else of any other kind of cycling because everybody has individualized and personalized their setup to what works for them. Yeah, and that's the key thing because what works for me won't work for you or someone yeah. else. Although I do, I, I do maintain though that 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 the Porsche Rocket seat bag is is for. Or ultra endurance racing the best design only because it's the only one i found that doesn't sway yeah i think i saw arkel makes another system similar that has a a metal frame that mounts to the seat post as well and they're okay instead of a seat bag that comes out long and narrow it's more like a pannier bag a little bit kind of like that v-shape yep. and yep. going out a little wider so it's not as long and there are different things. I, I read one, I think a guy, the blog Ride Far or something like that. Chris White. Yeah, he advocates a, a rack and like an Arkell rack top bag because he doesn't like that sway, I guess, as well. Yeah, he's, yeah I, I met Chris uh, on, on the Transcontinental Cup, the bike mechanic from um, uh, Lucerne. His wife's Canadian as well. And he, he he's really into it. But again, I, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think I think panniers are not the solution for, for ultra endurance bike racing. Well, the racks aren't, aren't light, right? When you get a, a rack that's going behind your seat and stuff, it's not that light. It's got to be half a kilo anyways, just for that rack. But the, the thing is, it depends what you're doing, because I've seen racks fail in, in the Tour Divide because of the vibrations and causing the aluminium to snap. And so it's one more thing to go wrong. Right. Oh, that's a good point. And, you know, and talking about things going wrong, it's interesting about power meters. And so like, I use power meters for training because I really want to monitor just how much demand I put on my body. Because again, I'm 60 years old. Mm -hmm. And yet in every race I've done, my power meter has failed on me. That's in four races. I've had four power meters fail on me. It's just like bad luck. So to this day, I don't have a power uh, profile for any of my races. Seriously. Yeah? And they're not yeah. cheap. So I, I don't know. Like I, I've thought of getting one at some points, but I'm like, okay, that's, that's another budget I have to maintain and figure out. And at least from at least my experiences, they're all good power meters, but they, when it comes to ultimate endurance racing, it's just too much for them. So we've already talked about power meters and how far you ride. Uh, let's talk about motivation because I think on an ultra endurance race, you do spend lots of time on your own. How do you keep focused and motivated uh, when the days are tough? I like to ride my bike. And I, I know that sounds really simple. People say, why do you do this? And I say, I like to ride my bike. And so as crazy as it sounds, I generally don't need motivation to ride my bike. It's just nice to be out there. When I'm out there with my legs turning, the air going past me, I have such a sense of joy and freedom that even on the bad days, it's okay because there's going to be good days as well. 
Mm-hmm. And I never, I get um, a lack of motivation to ride my bike. Okay. Having said that, I do carry with me a, a small uh, OT Buckshot uh, speaker, which is a little Bluetooth speaker. Okay. And so I listen to podcasts, the Bible, listen to songs and things when I'm doing that. But a lot of times it's just all turned off. I'm just happy in my in my zone, just listening to my breathing, listening to the, the world going by and just being grateful that I have the health ability to be out here enjoying this amazing world that we live in i was thinking about that too like do people wear headphones or i think it's not a good idea to wear headphones that are completely blocking your your chance of hearing what's going on around you but i guess the bluetooth speaker is the way to go huh? it is i mean i work on road safety and i can tell you that it's very darwinian wearing headphones i.e that you'll be removed from the gene pool <laughs> it's not safe and and the bluetooth speaker is a nice compromise around that so you're fueling, do you tend to just buy food mostly when you're racing? Yeah, so I, I, I never take a stove or anything like that because for two reasons. A, it's more weight, and B, I can't be bothered spending the time and hassle cooking food. And so for me, I just forage. And also I'm a vegetarian, which makes it a bit additionally a bit more challenging. And so when I find food, I eat it. And um, if I don't find food, I go hungry for a bit till I find it. And it, it, it gives you lasting memories. Like, for example, my, my wife knows this. The best meal of my life I had at five in the morning in northern Italy uh, during the 2015 Transcontinental Race, I'd ridden about all night long, and I was hungry and really just voracious appetite, looking for something to eat. And I found a cafe with two pieces of yesterday's cold pizza. And honestly, I was so hungry, that was, the, that was a gift of the gods. And so... <laughs> I feel myself just with what I can get. And then uh, I also have the dubious honor of, I think, saying the record in Transcontinentals for the most magnum ice creams where I had eight ice creams in one day because I've got some food poisoning and I was really quite sick. I needed fuel, so I just ate magnum ice creams. And people say, well, I only ate. I said, well, I figured more than eight's gluttony. And so I stopped at eight. Yeah, I kind of imagine like if you have – the time to, if you're stopping to eat, the last thing you want to do is waste energy cooking when you could just kind of sit back, rest, and let somebody else get the food ready. Yeah, and, and everyone's everyone's different. It's what what, you, what works for you. There's also an interesting culture. Um, I remember one time, again, this would be the 2015 Transcontinental Race. I was at the checkpoint in Croatia, and I was sitting down having my lunch, and these two cyclists came. I had no idea who they were. And they sat down, and the guy said, can I eat your bread? And... <laughs> And I said, of course, I gave it to him. And one of the things is that we all know that we need food. And if, if I ask someone else for food, they give it to me as well at the restaurant. And so we just want food now and we'll take it and we enjoy it. Uh, you said you're a vegetarian. Is it hard to, to maintain a vegetarian diet while you're racing? Um, it's hard to, it's impossible to maintain a nutritious vegetarian diet when you race. Okay. Uh, because uh, of course, I'm not a vegan, so I do eat dairy products when I'm racing. At home, I eat very little dairy products. Uh, but what you find is that um, you end up in some places, it's it's easier than others. But generally, you, you can find food without meat if you're looking for it. Cheese, biscuits, nice. crackers, breads. Like, like one of my main fuels is yogurt and bread because the yogurt's great because you can get the drinking yogurt in Europe, for example, yeah. on the North Cape. And so that's got... Uh, high calorie sugar, it's cold and it goes down your throat so beautifully and it's nutritious. And so I drink a lot of yogurt, for example, and at least in Europe, we can get it. Okay. Makes sense. What about some of the challenges to ultra cycling? I know you said, uh, you know, you said everybody has to ride within their own means and to what they feel. Um, 
keeping energized, I guess it just comes down to how you eat, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I guess listen to your body. And, and one of the things is that I think years ago, Mike Hawks gave great advice, is that if you want to quit the race, just go to find a hotel, go to bed for 24 hours and see how you feel the next day. And so if you're if you're losing your energy and your enthusiasm, just stop and take a rest day and then see how you feel the next day. Because it's all about listening to your body and keeping in tune with 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 how you're feeling. Because in the end, you know, there's no prize money, there's no recognition. You know, no one cares if you came in tenth or thirty-fourth or whatever it is. It's just this is all a, a personal journey to have a challenge, to train for the challenge, and then to hopefully achieve your goal. If not, well, it's okay. Life goes on because this is just what we do for fun. And so if you're finding you're losing your enthusiasm and energy, then, well, something's wrong. Take to take a break and work out what it is. And then if it's not going well, you should just bail and do something else. True enough. Dealing with mechanical issues, you did mention you, you had a pedal problem. Was it a crippling problem or were you able to ride still? And how did you get to, to the point where you could change it and fix it? Well, you know, is one of the things that you find with, with is that as I mentioned before, you, you deal with the problems. What happened was I had new pedals, uh, Shimano um, SPD platform pedals, and the bearings just went in one of the pedals. And it got to the point where it was barely turning, which is quite hard. And this was in Slovenia. And so I found a bike shop that was closed. And I went across the street and spoke to the pizzeria. And they said, oh, the guy's on holiday in, in, in um, Italy. But I'll call him, see, see what he can do. So she calls the owner in Italy who calls his mechanic and the mechanic comes in an hour later and I'm finishing my pizza to, to sell me some pedals. Oh, wow. And this is the sort of thing that happens all the time, which I find is that you know, people say, oh, aren't you afraid things will go wrong? What's going to happen? But in my experience, people are really genuinely nice people. They want to help you. And whenever I've had a problem, I've been able to fix it myself. I've needed a place to sleep. People have let me sleep. Um, it, it's a really positive thing to have a challenge and then find that there's a community who will help you and they don't even know you they never see you again but people have always been helpful when things have gone wrong yeah because you you sorted that out any other major problems the pedal the handlebar the wheels <laughs> how many more do you want i don't know come uh, on <laughs> fill me in is, is is as an example i used to have a um a bnm dynamo light and um when i was doing the indian pacific across australia it was just torrential rain for the first day and my light then started flashing. And so my headlight would not come on full time. It was flashing at about, you know, one or two hertz. And so rather than having light at nighttime, I had this flashing light all the time, which was really annoying because you're traveling across the outback. Yeah, so I've had, I've had that problem. I mentioned things like the bottom bracket. But fortunately, I've never had anything so bad that I actually have been taken out of the race. It's all been quite manageable. Okay. So you said you, one of the key factors is to have backups, right? So you you have a, you had an extra light with you, or in that case you didn't, and you were like, oh, I did. No, I, I did, but it was uh, it was just a lithium battery light, which didn't have anywhere near the same power as my other light. But okay. I made do I made do with that one. Okay. And so what I basically did was it was because we were going through the outback. Um, what I would do is I would use this very low power lithium light for as long as it lasted. But then when any, any traffic was coming towards me, I'd turn on my flashing headlight, which would get the attention. One thing I thought was a really cool piece of kit, you wear this um, crazy neon glow stick-like it, vest. Yeah, it's called a Knox Gear 360. And it's, it's pretty cool, actually. Uh, Chris White got one as well after he saw me in the 2013 transcript. I don't know what it is. I should say. Because what it is is it has fiber optic cable which crosses you. 
and it flashes at light. And when people see this flashing thing, they slow down. Even they're coming towards you, they slow down. Oh. One night I was cycling through um, Macedonia, and this policeman pulls me over at like midnight and points to my vest and puts, gives me a thumbs up to say, this is great. <laughs> well, I was a bit worried when he pulled me over, but it was just to, as I say, admire my flashing vest. Because one of the big things about it is that people, again, because I'm a road safety person, I'm really big on visibility. Because I know that people will not always see you at night in the dark. As much as we think they will, they don't. And so what that means is, like, for example, on my bike, I have this flashing um, vest, which I wear, for want a better term. Uh, I also have uh, a flashing rear light, which is a really bright one, plus I have a solid rear light. I also have, because I really want to make sure people are aware that I'm there. Good things to think about. In uh, in France, you have to have a like some kind of green vest at night when you're riding. Is this does this um, Nox 360? Does that count as that kind of thing you need? Well, that's what the law says, but I've never been pulled over by the police in France for not having one. Okay. I, I think that I think it, I don't think it's enforced. Okay, cool. How do you handle wild dogs? Because I think I remember <laughs> you riding into Turkey and just uh, being constantly hounded by dogs. Is there a trick? Pedal harder when you can. In fact, it's interesting. Is that um, that. That was um, on the transcontinental race. They, before that, I'd gone through Albania at night, and I was driving down this, sucking down this pitch black road in the dark, and my headlight was cutting through ahead of me. And I heard this deep woof behind me, and so I started sprinting. And then I heard this dog behind me, and all I could hear was this heavy breathing and its claws on the pavement as I was trying to out sprint it. And because it was pitch black, I couldn't see a thing. And all I hear was these was these nails on the road trying to catch me. Kept going for a long time. I out sprinted it. And yeah, and then the um, Greece and Turkey were really bad for dogs. Mm-hmm. And I was I was quite harassed by animals then. And really, there's only two things you can do: you can squirt your water bottle at them, or you can try and out sprint them. And um, neither of them are fully satisfactory. Um, touch wood. I've never been bitten, but uh, it's it's only by the grace of God. And yeah, I, I will I will confess that I spent a long time in in Turkey fantasizing how to kill dogs when I was cycling because I was so traumatized. I mean, there was one time I went to this village. I was approaching this village at like five in the morning, having cycled all night long. There was a pack of dogs at the edge of the village, so I sprint ahead of that pack of dogs and I out sprint them. Get to the middle of the village, a second pack of dogs, so I out sprint those. And then sure enough, at the other end of the village, there's a third pack of dogs that chased me. <laughs> but then the worst things happened is that as I was sprinting past the second pack of dogs, I missed my turn. So I had to go back through the through two sets of dogs a second time to get back on route. Oh. Yeah, so I, suffice to say, I don't have fond memories of dogs in Greece and Turkey. Yeah, I read an article where the, a person writes and says, you know, well, because dogs, their inherent thing is to chase prey. And when you come cycling by and surprise them, you become prey. They yeah. say you should just stop and get off your bike and they're going to quickly stop and lose interest. But then what if they come and bite you, right? Well, that's just it. It's, it's easy to say that, but we've got half a dozen Turkish dogs looking for breakfast. I'm sorry, but I'll try and I'll, I'll, try and I'll sprint them. <laughs> Good point. All right. Any best moments throughout your years of ultra bike racing? Too many to remember. I think the most, the best thing about the ultra endurance racing scene are the people you meet because... I think there's a fairly small number of people who are attracted to this sport. And we meet people on on these races who know each other and we don't know each other. We find kindred spirits. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very grateful to count as many friends, people I've met through this race scene. 
Now you mentioned Chris White now, and there's Ricky Carter, and there's many others who we've met. And it's just really delightful having them in my life because, yeah, that that to me is the best moments from my racing have been just the people I've met. Okay. If you're looking for more experiences, you know, there there are things like uh, when I was doing that that race in Germany a couple of years ago, the Grenstein Trophy, I was in the middle of Germany and I was, I was navigating by GPS through this field. And I just stopped and all I could hear were the frogs. I could smell the the fresh grass, the birds are flying by, and there was such a beauty and peace around me. And you think, yeah, you know, life doesn't get a lot better than this. Mm-hmm. And and with all these races, you go places and you see things that you would never see. You know, you know, cy- cycling back to the North Cape Tarifa race, you know, Andy Bucks, who's the organizer, has you know came up with a magical course which was which was safe. And so what it meant was we could actually enjoy the ride without worrying about being roadkill. Whereas in other races I've been on, it's just really dangerous. And so what that means is there are many times in the race where you stop and you say, man, this is a beautiful world we live in and having amazing adventures. Okay. So too many for me to even list. Yeah, I think I remember you writing about that and telling uh, Andy Bucks that this is just the most safe race you've ever done and and how good it was because of that, right? Because it was a designated route you must follow yeah and and, and it's like i, I give him a hard time because we're, we're heading down into um in latvia towards riga and he pulls us off this road onto this soft sandy road for 60 kilometers I said to andy andy yeah what was behind this? he says oh the shoulder ran out further on towards riga and there were so many trucks it was dangerous so i thought no well this is a safer route and what's nice about the North Cape Tarifa you know, race more than anything else is that you really have four sections. And so if you, you, know, you mentioned 7,400 K is a long race, you can just do the Finland section, which is 1,500 K. Mm-hmm. You can go from, um, uh, from uh, Tallinn, Tallinn in Estonia down to um, Austria. You know, you can do the Austria to Nice or you can do the Nice to Spain. You know, so you can pick sections of that and just have that as an experience as a first as a first ultra endurance race. And if people are wanting to try that, I would strongly encourage you to look at the North Cape to because it's a safe race. There are, you know, there's nowhere where you're ever going to be fully um, protected by vehicles. But yeah. the fact is, it's a, it's a course where the organizer's gone out of his way to keep us safe. And honestly... Um, I would say, but by comparison, when I did the race across Australia, which uh, admittedly I, I, we, we stopped just outside Melbourne because Mike Hall got killed in that race mm-hmm. and Jesse, Jesse canceled the race. So I only got, as I say, about uh, two thirds through the race when they stopped it. But I would say five times a day, I was scared and I've got pretty high risk tolerances. I mean, I've cycled into Istanbul. So obviously I'm, I'm on that extreme. And five times a day, I was scared. By comparison, in the 7,400K race from North Cape to Tarifa, it was five times in the entire race I would have felt scared. Okay, wow. And and that's the difference between having a race, or sorry, an adventure, I shouldn't call it a race. Sorry, Andy, if you're listening to this. An adventure, which is following a really safe route versus what a lot of us end up on. Because like with the transcontinental races, we are given checkpoints and we have to have our own route between the checkpoints. And you do that route from Google Earth and looking at Google Maps and you map it out. Well, sometimes you find the traffic on those routes is just abominable. And I think it was two years ago, they actually 
got met a message from, I think it was actually James Hayden was leading the race at the time, which we said that this route in Romania was too dangerous to ride. And so during the race, the organizers forbade cyclists going on that route. Oh, wow. Okay. Whereas with North Cape Tarifa, Andy's done all that work for us. And we have a nice, safe route to go on for uh, all the way from Norway to Spain. Yeah. Now, the worst part, but the worst part is he's a very evil race organizer because at 7,000 K, he, he takes you up this mountain to 3,400 meters high. So Andy, if you're listening to this, you, I still think you're evil. But that aside, it's a great, it's a great route. <laughs> is that why you like at the 7,000 K mark, you're going up a mountain and you said you saw the two guys coming down is because it was like a checkpoint up top there? Or? Yep, that was it. Okay. And Andy was at the top of the, check, the top of the checkpoint. And unfortunately, I, I have altitude problems. For, uh, and so I, I find it pretty tough going, but I made it to the end. Okay. Yeah, I think the North Cape 4000 as well, the one that starts in Italy and goes up to North Cape is also a pre-designated route that they've laid out, so... That should be a nice way to do a race next summer where I don't have to plot my own and hopefully it's quite safe. Yeah, I've looked at the route. So it'll be a fun ride. Yeah. Do you have a worst moment? Yeah, so the worst moment of my racing also led to one of the best moments. Uh, in 2013, I was doing the Tour Divide and um, that's, a, that's a mountain bike race from Canada to Mexico. And in northern New Mexico, they have what they call the monsoons which turned the roads into an absolute quagmire of mud. And it's like, makes peanut butter look like oil. It's just horrible stuff. And we got caught in the storm. It was a lightning storm and it was just muddy. And it was just a really, really bad day. And, and I cracked. I mean, mentally, I just cracked on it. Okay. And I, I managed to get to the section and I got out to where this restaurant was. And there were a couple of guys, and Peter Main Donald from New Zealand uh, was there with a few others. And I, I had it. And... So um, they they took off for Silver City, and I and after recovering a bit, I rode my bike to Silver City, and I got to Silver City at ten o'clock at night, and um, the finish line was about two hundred k away, and um, I was really mad at myself for cracking, and so I was sitting there and I said, no, I I can do this, and so I went to the car wash and pressure washed all this crap off my bike, and then just head for the finish line. And I rode all night long. That was the first time I'd ever ridden more than probably 18 hours. And I think I rode about 26 hours and I finished the race. Sick. And what was also interesting was Peter and six others had spent the night in Silver City. So I actually jumped ahead by seven, seven places in the finishing by, by doing that. Nice. Just by having that little determination and going for it. Huh? Yeah. And so the, the worst day led to a very satisfying day. Oh, cool. Do you prefer the road races or the off-road races? They're both so different. It's, it's really hard to compare them. I prefer road races like the North Cape Tarifa, okay. where it's safe. And you don't, the advantage of, of off-road races is you just have to worry about crashing and hurting yourself. Like last year, I crashed in the tour, uh, Tenero and tore my face open. And so that, that was my own fault. Whereas with road races, it's more you'd be taken out by a driver like Mike Hall was in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a case of saying there's different risks, but um, a safe road race, I think, is, is the ideal. What was the, uh, the situation there? Was it just he was riding along the edge of the road and a car hit him? It was early morning and a driver didn't see him and Mike was killed. And yeah. um, it's a total tragedy, real waste. And, and as I think I mentioned earlier on, you know, I work with road safety. And unfortunately, cyclists and vulnerable pedestrians, you know, that's some half of the people killed around the world are vulnerable users. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think that's bringing us to the end. What's next for you? Um, I think I read that you were done with the ultra endurance racing for a while. Yeah, well, 
think that was an agreement with your wife or <laughs> yes but 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 the while is soon to be over so 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 this is the first year 2009 so i've not done any ultra endurance racing i was going to do the ironman canada just in mont tremblant or the one in whistler in, in whistler but i'm still dealing with uh, with my post-concussion syndrome from my crash last year and so decided to be sensible and not do that but next year is going to be a lot of fun so um, May 1st, I'm doing the Italian Divide race, I hope. Okay. And then May 23rd, I'm planning on the Normandy Cat 900 in France. And then June 17th, the Grenstein Trophy in Germany. And then after that, uh, my wife and I will go hiking in the Dolomites with Ricky Cotter, who I met on the 2014 Transcendental Race in oh. a few weeks. Yes. So that's the plan for next year, but who knows? Where are the, the Dolomites? The body uh, Northern Italy. Northern Italy. Yeah. Yes. Where can people find you if they want to read more up on your bike races and blogs? And- There's a website called lpcb.org, and um, things are linked there. I've got a I've got a link to my blogs and other things on that okay. website. So it's lp for Lise Peterson and cb for chrisbennett.org. Perfect. Oh yeah, lpcb.org. All right, I'll put a link to that in the uh, the show notes and stuff where people can follow you yes. and on my website. Well, Chris, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the, the show. We had a really, really interesting talk and, and it, was, it really means a lot for me because uh, this is something I'm looking more to do. And I think it also brings another entire different aspect to, to cycling, you know, and gives people something to think about and maybe some more, maybe build interest. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Chris, to, to share the experiences. And, and as I say, in the end, if you enjoy riding your bicycle, try an ultra endurance racing because you'll find, I think many of us are looking for challenges. And as I said at the beginning, I think this is the purest form, just you and your bike and find a solution and get to the finish line or not. Or not. All right. Thank you, Chris. And uh, talk to you soon. Cheers. All the best. Bye-bye. I just want to thank Chris once again for taking the time to record this podcast with me. It was really interesting to get the perspective of a different kind of sport that we can do that involves cycling. If you'd like to know more, I mean, this guy, he's got so many great stories. If you check out his blog, everything from cycling across America a couple times, cycling the Lewis and Clark Trail, kayaking in Alaska, riding some expressway in China, doing a whole bunch of Ironmans. He's got some really amazing stories. I think there was one where he stayed in a brothel in Poland. Ukrainian brothel, gangster mafia related. Great stories. Check him out. Coming up next on Bike Tour Adventures is I don't know. I have a couple people that I haven't interviewed yet, so we'll see which happens first, and that will be the next episode. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening, and I hope to get more content out to you real soon. If you like what you're hearing, please go to my website, www.biketouradventures.com, and check it out. And I don't have a subscribe button that works on there yet, so you can check into the podcast wherever you listen to them, and you can subscribe there. That also helps me out tremendously. Thanks so much, and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca. Or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to 
patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.